I want you, if you would, at this time, um, put on your thinking caps and imagine with me for a moment that you're sitting on your back porch. Now, some of you don't have a back porch. I can sympathize with you. I have a covered side porch that faces a parking lot. Um, But many of you have back porches facing a beautiful uh, scenic sort of nature vista. Imagine that's where you are. If it's, maybe it's a friend's back porch. You're on a back porch. The sun is setting. You're enjoying nature. Uh, it's summer. It's warm. It's happy. And, and then what's going to happen? Well, if you live in the swamp of northeast North Carolina, you know exactly what's going to happen. Out come the skeeters. Isn't that right, Carol? And they're, they're, like, uh, they're, they're like a hybrid between a, a normal mosquito and something like a pterodactyl. Um, southern mosquitoes are, are, are not something to be trifled with. They are large and in charge. So what do you do to get rid of the mosquitoes? Well, uh, some of you have those little tiki kind of lamps that you, you have s- sitting in your yard or around your deck, and you light those things up, and suddenly the scent of lemongrass oil washes over you, and bugs are gone. Well, I happen to find lemongrass oil to be quite disgusting. I don't like the smell of that stuff, and neither do the bugs. That's why it works as a natural repellent. This morning, you've probably already seen, well, the graphic behind me and on your bulletin, we're going to start a series that's going to be, look at, that's going to be looking at ways that churches can act like a repellent. Now, the name of this series is not implying, as Pastor Aaron pointed out this week, and he's right, it does sound like we're saying the people pushed away from church are bugging us, as if we need the citronella to keep people out. That's not the the idea of the title, and he knew that. He was just ribbing me a little bit. The idea of the series isn't so much on the bugs. (laughs) The idea is on us. How, How do we, as the people of God, smell, so to speak? Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 that that God uses the church to spread the knowledge of Christ everywhere like a sweet perfume. Our lives are a Christ-like fragrance rising up to God. But sometimes what people smell when they get around Christians or get around whole churches is not so much the fragrant aroma of Christ, but something more like a noxious gas. We have all known or even been people who have experienced the worst of church. And the Bible is not silent on the topic. And so I want to take just a, a few weeks between now and before our revival services here in a few weeks, and I want to look at a few examples in the scriptures that talk about common ways that church life can come up short, but also look at ways at how the Bible addresses it. Okay, so that's what we're trying to do here the next few weeks. I hope that makes some sense to you. We're going to be in Acts chapter 5 this morning. If you grabbed one of the the guest Bibles back there in the back, we're on page 878. Um, But before I dive into Acts chapter 5, I want to summarize very briefly Acts 1 through 4. And I'm going to summarize it like this. Jesus has risen. Jesus has ascended. The Holy Spirit has come, and people are converted. There's Acts 1 through 4 for you in a very in, uh, inadequate nutshell, but that's Acts 1 through 4 in a nutshell. And, and, the, and chapter 4 ends with this beautiful snapshot of what this burgeoning movement of God 
looks like. You want to look in your Bibles there just a little bit before chapter 5. Look, I'm actually going to start reading in verse 31. Um, I asked them to put verse 32 first on the screen, so just hold verse 32 for a second. I'm going to read verse 31, and then we'll pick up in 32 on the screen. Acts chapter 4 ends like this. After this, that is the the time of prayer they spent, the meeting place of the, the first Christians here shook, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Then they preached the word of God with boldness. Now verse 32. All the believers were united in heart and mind, and they felt that what they owned was not their own, so they shared everything they had. The apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's great blessing was upon them all. There were no needy people among them, because those who owned land or houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles to give to those in need. And the last couple of verses there are, are the example of Barnabas and how he sold some of his own property and, and presented that to the apostles for, for the needs of the whole. So here you have this, this community of people that has, has sprung into to existence based on the resurrection of Jesus and his ascension and the Spirit's coming in all of his fullness, and they are, we're told here, one in heart and mind. And we've looked at that, that idea in the past. And, and in that oneness, this radical oneness of mind and heart, we're told that they were available to each other. All that I am, all that I own, I am, I'm presenting to you however it is needed. It's a beautiful picture of, of Christian community. And the consequence of this there in verse 34, is that there was no needy people among them. It's a beautiful picture of the people of God. In his notes, John Wesley points out the, the incredible and necessary connection between what it says in verse 31 as them being filled with the Spirit, and then again, in, in, a little bit later, abundant grace being upon them all. He, he, he points out the, the connection between those two things with what's said in the rest of the, the passage here. That they were one in heart and soul, and had all things in common. There's a connection between the presence of the Spirit of God, the work of his grace in the, in the people of God, and then them being unified and available and giving to one another. There's a direct connection between the two. Lives that are truly made right with God will be lived out a certain way toward one another. And yet, whenever you find a genuine movement of God, whenever you see a, a place and a people where God is active and at work, well, you can, you can know that the enemy is also at work there too, can't you? And that's exactly what we see in the very next verse, starting out in chapter 5. So in Acts chapter 5, right after we hear this beautiful statement about the people of God, and the example of Barnabas, the sort of, sort of an object lesson of, of what this looks like in practice, we have in verse 5, I'm sorry, sorry chapter 5, verse 1, but there was a certain man named Ananias, who with his wife, Sapphira, sold some property. He brought part of the money to the apostles, claiming it was the full amount. With his wife's consent, he kept the rest. Then Peter said, Ananias, why have you let Satan fill your heart? You lied to the Holy Spirit, and you kept some of the money for yourself. The property was yours to sell or not sell as you wished. And after selling it, the money was also yours to give away. How could you do a thing like this? You weren't lying to us, but to God. As soon as Ananias heard these words, he fell to the floor and died. 
Everyone who heard about it was terrified. Then some young men got up, wrapped him in a sheet, and took him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, was this the price you and your husband received for your land? Yes, she replied, that was the price. And Peter said, how could the two of you even think of conspiring to test the spirit of the Lord like this? The young men who buried your husband are just outside the door, and they will carry you out too. Instantly, she fell to the floor and died. When the young men came in and saw that she was dead, they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear gripped the entire church and everyone else who heard what had happened. Now, I'm just going to be a little honest and frank with you. There's, there's a certain discomfort <laughs> that I feel in my spirit every time I come to this story. Um, part, I think part of it's due to just the, just the sheer honesty of the Bible and, and its you know, very open presentation of, of what really took place here. You know, Luke, our, our wonderful historian and author of, of the, the, the book of Acts here, he could very easily have just skipped over this story altogether because it, it, it does show that within even the, the spirit-filled life of the community of, of God, there, there's shady stuff that could be going on. There's things that can bring disrepute to, to the, this movement, to the name of Jesus. And he could have very easily just kind of skipped over that because the end of chapter 4 is quite happy, isn't it? You know, the Spirit has come and Peter has preached and they're, they're standing up to, to the, the bad guys and everyone's happy and getting along and they're sharing and it's, yay, Jesus. And then the next verse, but there's this couple. And Luke's very honest about it. The, the Bible is very realistic about the things that go on in the actual life of the spirit-filled community with its real issues. But I think most of my discomfort just comes from just the, the, the seemingly really harsh judgment that came upon this couple. And there's this, I'm sure it's, it's a sinful or, or some sort of broken impulse in me that wants to, you know, explain it away somehow or make excuses for what's going on here. But but then I'm reminded of the truth of the message I just preached not that long ago, that, that Jesus is a good shepherd. Jesus is a good shepherd who, who cares for his sheep, and part of the caring for his sheep involves a protection against the wolves. And we, and we look at this story and we say, how could a loving God do such a thing? And, and, and then, but when we look at his perspective and we see what is really going on here as as the enemy is at work through people to disrupt what God is doing in the church, and then we say, how could a loving God not do something here? And he does do something, and it's harsh, and it's hard, and it jostles us, and it strikes fear, not just in us, it strikes fear in the people there. There was a terror that spread throughout the people, not just in the church, but beyond anyone who heard this story, were moved, they were shaken to their core. Something significant was taking place here, and God was doing some, something significant in response. And in his love for his flock, he's working to care and protect it. Now, I don't think the story is necessarily prescribing the precise manner that you and I should expect God to act, you know, on the regular basis. And, and I hope for your sake and mine, we are grateful for that. I'm glad that every time I've 
done something stupid or sinful or foolish that God hasn't struck me dead on the spot. I'm really glad that that's not been the story of my life. I don't think that's the point. I don't think it's meant to be prescriptive in that sense. I do think, however, that this story is meant to be a a very vivid demonstration of God's love for his church and his determination to, to present and protect and keep his people for his glory and for his purposes in the world. Now, you students of the Old Testament, and I hope all of you here who claim to be Christians value and welcome and, and love the Old Testament like you do the New, those of you who are, are familiar with, the, with the, much of the Old Testament might see, and you'd be right to see, the, a, a very strong parallel here between the story of Ananias and Sapphira and the story of Achan back in Joshua chapter 7. You remember that story. The, the Israelites had just, uh, as they were on the threshold of, of taking over Jericho, God gave them a warning And he basically said, you know, once this is done and all the rubble is lying around, you are not to gather for yourself the stuff you see. It's not yours. Don't take it and keep it and hoard it to yourself. If you do, you will be destroyed. And not only that, you're going to bring great trouble to all the rest of Israel. And so they conquer Jericho and they enter into the promised land and And then what happens? The very next battle, Israel is described as confused and perplexed, and they're ultimately defeated. This this group of people who had just conquered a great fortress simply by walking around it a few times and shouting at the top of their lungs, it took nothing to defeat the fortress. And yet, in the very next battle, well, they're scattered like cockroaches when the light turns on. What was the difference? Well, they didn't have God with them. And why was that? Well, it was because someone in the camp, someone kept something for themselves. And as they investigated the situation, they found that God was angry with his people because of the sins of Achan and his family who kept certain spoils to themselves. And as a result... Again, it, it jostles us, <laughs> it, it shakes us to our core, but they were stoned, and they were burned, and they were buried beneath a pile of rocks in what came to be known as the Valley of Trouble. F.F. Bruce, the great evangelical scholar, says this, the story of Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts is what the story of Achan was to the book of Joshua. In both narratives, an act of deceit interrupts the victorious progress of the people of God. See, both, both of these stories take place sort of at the formational stages in the life of the people of God. As, as they're entering into the, the, the fullness of what God has saved them and presented them to be, this, these things happen. Both of these stories illustrate the power of deceit to undermine the community, to undermine the mission of God's people, to undermine the very honor of God's name. And these are the things that are at stake here in this story. It's not just an isolated example of of a couple who are a little greedier than someone else. No, the, the, the story here is about the impact that the lies of a few can have on the life of the many. And it is to be, be taken seriously. 
You can't build a community on deceit and distrust, can you? I dare you to show me one example of that anywhere. Look at your own life and the relationships that you have. The, not just any relationship, but the relationships that are real. The ones that matter. The ones that have an actual impact for the good upon your life. The ones that last. What are those relationships built upon? Well, in every, you might have a, a, a different you know, set of answers to that question, specific to your, the, the, the actual relationship that you're thinking of. But at some point, I would, I would, if I was a betting man, I would say every one of you would say at some point that in that relationship, there was a sense of real honesty. There was something real and authentic and genuine to the way that you were open and related to one another. Because at the end of the day, there is no communion apart from honesty, and there's no honesty without the truth. The sermon title this morning is an oxymoron by, you know, by intention. There is no such thing as a community of distrust. It's a, to me, it's a, a contradiction in terms. There's, there is no real communion apart from real honesty and truth. And when I'm talking about communion, I'm talking about the kind that we see in Acts chapter 2, verse 1, or Acts chapter 4, verse 32, like we just talked about, that, that communion that God is creating among his people, that, that homothumadon, you remember that word, that oneness of mind, that oneness of heart, that singular focus and mission, we're together, we're linked arm to arm, we're on the same page, we're going the same direction. That can never exist apart from trust, and trust is built on truth every time. The great enterprise of God in this broken world is not just to save individuals from hell. And if that is the sum total of your understanding of salvation, it is incomplete at best. No, the great enterprise of God in this broken world is not just to save individuals from hell. It is to restore communion. Communion with God and communion with one another. You could say that's the story of the Bible. God's endeavor in history to repair fractured relationships. Through Christ and by the power of the Spirit, God is creating not just a bunch of saved individuals. God is creating a new covenant community, a new humanity that he calls the church. By the way, in Acts, it is this story where the word church first appears. It's the first time Luke calls the new covenant people of God the church. It's not a coincidence to me. And whatever disrupts the church's communion, whatever disrupts the church's mission, essentially undermines the very purposes of God in history. It's a big deal to God. It should be a big deal to us. So what's the problem here with Ananias and Sapphira? Well, it's not their withholding of money. No one was under any obligation here to give anything. I've heard lots of silly comments and arguments over the years pointing to these verses as somehow suggesting that communism is compatible with Christianity. Now show me one communist nation in the history of the world that was compatible with Christianity or even kind to Christianity. That's not what's happening here. That, that everyone was free. 
Everyone was free to give as they felt led. There was no compulsion here. This wasn't an example of, of, a, of, a, of a, a strong central leadership arbitrarily taking from some and giving it to others. No, this was people united in mind and heart who were one in the spirit, who were freely giving of themselves to meet needs as they arose. That's a far cry from communism. So they were under no obligation here. Peter says the property was yours to sell or not to sell as you wished. No one told you to do this. This is all your own idea. This is all your scheme that you've developed here between you and your wife. And after selling it, the money was also yours to give away. They could have sold the property or not sold the property. They could have kept the money or not kept the money. the, The problem here is not against their withholding of money. It is against their dishonesty. It's against their deceit. They said they were doing one thing, and they pretended to do it while they were doing something entirely else instead. So it's not so much the absence of generosity here. If they'd have sold the, the, the piece of property and gave a, a, a tithe of it, that would have been generous. It's not the absence of generosity that's the problem. It's the absence of integrity. Bringing only a part while pretending to bring the whole. They desired the credit and the prestige that comes with sacrificial giving. They wanted the spotlight of it all, but they didn't want the inconvenience of it all. So in order to gain a reputation to which they had no right, they told a lie. Their motive wasn't to relieve the poor. Their their motive was to feed their own egos, to make a name for themselves. To put themselves on some sort of pedestal of of righteousness. Look at me. Look what I'm doing. They probably saw Barnabas do this. and They probably saw the, the reaction of the community and thought, ooh, I want that for myself. And there's examples of this throughout Acts. When people who are wicked in their hearts see the good things that the apostles are doing and the community of God is doing, and they don't want that, they want the credit for that without the reality of it. And led by the Spirit, Peter sees right through the deception. And he detects the subtle activity of Satan himself. And because of this, God's judgment came. And I think, as we're trying to make sense of this passage and try to say, well, how does this directly apply to my life, to our life? I think there's at least three things we can take away from this this little episode here. So if you're a note taker, I'm going to give you three things here to finish up our time this morning. The first is this, the gravity of sin. The gravity of sin. I think you and I could all say, At some point in our lives, if not often, we tend to underestimate the significance of sin in the eyes of God. So they told a lie. I like how we disguise our deceit sometimes under the phrase white lie. We think we're doing something good for somebody if we withhold truth. They told someone a little lie, but so what? They still gave. It's not that big of a deal. You think it's a big deal to God? I mean, Peter sees this, and again, by the, the, the presence of the Spirit of God who, who sheds light and illuminates and brings, brings light to darkness, Peter sees it and he says, hey, 
you're not just lying. You're lying to the Holy Spirit. Verse 3. Verse 4, you're lying to God. To, to, to Sapphira, verse 9, he says, you're putting the Spirit of the Lord to the test. Now, where have you heard language like that before? Well, go back to the people of God who've just been delivered from Egypt. They're making their way to the promised land and in the wilderness. They did what? They put the Lord to the test. In other words, God issues a command. He tells them what to be. He tells them what to do and not to do. And then they do that thing to see if he's really going to make good on his word. Let's just see how serious God actually is when he says not to do this thing. And I hear the, the, the words made famous from Jesus himself in his own wilderness experience to that. He says, don't put the Lord your God to the test. Don't do it. He means business when it comes to the matter of his gospel. You think God is content to give his son's life for the sake of the world, only for the, the very people claiming the gospel of themselves to then undermine it in the face of the world that needs it? Do you think he'll stand for that? Do you think that's not a big deal to him? It is. He means business when it comes to the matter of the gospel. He means business when it comes to the matter of the new community that he bought with his own blood. He means business when it comes to their witness to a lost and dying world. You see, to God, it's not just a matter of a white lie or a little lie. Or, no, to God, and I hope I'm not being hyperbolic here, I, I, think, I think I have the the weight of the scriptures to, to back me up. I think to God, it's a matter of eternal life and death. You see, Ananias and Sapphira's scandal, well, it threatened the very reputation of the gospel itself. The gospel, which alone has the power to actually defeat sin. The gospel that has the power to restore a right relationship with God and with one another. And as a people of the gospel, if we're conducting ourselves in such a way and living in such a way that it, it brings disrepute on the very message we share, God cares about that. They were bringing scandal to the gospel. It's a great temptation for you and me today as modern Christians to take sin lightly, but God doesn't do it. When it comes to our relationships with one another and, and who we are towards one another and how we behave and how we speak towards one another, every word that we utter matters. Everyone. And if you and I, and by the way, we're not going to get it right all the time. I say stupid things every day. Just ask my wife. She left because she didn't want to be in here this morning when I'm talking about it. Don't clap at that. We're going to say stupid stuff. We're going to mess up. That's not the point. The point is, if we're not marked by truth at the level of the heart, then we will have no witness to the world. Because you and I will be living out some form of godliness while denying its power. And that is, that's something that has no life 
no place in the life of the church. The gravity of sin. Secondly, for you note takers, the supremacy of truth. The supremacy of truth. 1 John chapter 1, verse 7 says, If we are living in the light as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with each other. Isn't that a beautiful, oh, beautiful and hopeful promise? It's not just some sort of objective statement. It is objectively true, but it's a promise. If this happens, if you and I live an honest, transparent life before God and man, the result is fellowship with one another. Which means, by the way, on the flip side, that any lack of honesty, any lack of authenticity in our actions or in our words threatens the integrity of every relationship in your life. If you're fake, it'll matter. If you're dishonest, it will matter. If you are untrue, it will matter. If you are unfaithful, it will matter to someone. It will matter to someone. We have to walk in the light as God is in the light to have fellowship with one another. And you're not living in the light when you project to be something that you're not. Jesus hates that, by the way. Jesus hates fake, surface-level religiosity. He loves people that are that way. Don't, make the, don't fail to make the distinction there. Jesus loved the Pharisees. His, his ministry all throughout the Gospels is a constant appeal to them. It's, it's an invitation to the worst of the worst. He didn't come to die for the, the, the righteous. I came to die for the unrighteous. And even that right there, it's, a, it's an accusation against their self-righteousness, but it's, it's laden with this invitation in your self-righteousness, you are actually unrighteous. I came to die for you. Jesus loves Pharisees, but oh, he hates Pharisaism. That outward religiosity. You know what I'm talking about. It's the projection of godliness. That is really no different than, as Jesus calls, a whitewashed tomb. It's dead. It's dead on the inside. It looks nice, but it's dead. He hates that stuff. But listen, living in the light does not mean that you, need, you are compelled to go around being brutally honest with people. So on one end, you have people who, who aren't honest at all. They're fake in everything they are from the inside out, from the top to the bottom. There's others who think it's their cause and their mission to be brutally honest with every person they come into contact with. And I don't see that, that in Jesus either. That there's a way that, that people can relate to other people where they wield truth as some sort of weapon. I'm going to not only reveal and expose something, I'm going to destroy you. I'm going to reduce not just your argument, I'm going to reduce you to a pile of rubble. That's not the way of Jesus. Can you find me an example of Jesus doing that once? Where he ever wields truth like a weapon to destroy a person? 
Not once. The way of Jesus from the inside out and in, in who he is at his core and in all that he does in every circumstance, no matter who he's talking to or what the scenario is or the situation, Jesus only ever is truth in love. Always. Always together. There's, there's never a moment where Jesus is speaking the truth, but that love thing. There's never once where Jesus is loving, but at the expense of truth. It's always ever in perfect connection, perfect union, expressed beautifully always in their fullness through his life. And that's the very thing that he commands of us in everything. Truth in love. Not just speaking truth, as if that's the only action that you and I participate in that connects with truth. It does involve speaking, by the way. <laughs> but when we, looked at, you know, when we look at Ephesians 4.15, as we've done in the past, it's not just speaking truth. It's a, I think it's a better rendering of the verb there, truthing in love. Meaning it's, 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 a, it's the sum total of all of you. You're being true in all of life, in every part of you. Every bit of you is real. Every bit of you is honest. There's no pretense. There's no veneer. There's no sort of presentation for people. There's no discrepancies between the things you say, the things you do, what you tell people you are, and what you really are on the inside. You practice what you preach. You live out what you believe with an undivided heart. All the time, conditioned and expressed in love, truthing in love. That describes Jesus, and that should describe the people who make up his body. And yet you and I both know as we contemplate this and think about this and we're listening to the Spirit speaking to our hearts, you and I both know that you and I are not capable of that on our own. Who in here would stand up and say, I am truthing in love on my own all the time? Well, I would say if, you're, if you stood up and said that, you're not truthing in love. <laughs> you're defeating your own, your own statement there. No, it's not something we can do our, on our own, but it is something that God can't, <coughs> excuse me, these allergies are killing me, the, the mosquitoes and the pollen, life in the swamp. It's not something you and I can do, but it is something God can do, and it's something God must do in my life and in your life. How? Oh, by the gracious power of his spirit. The spirit whom Jesus called what? The spirit of, say it, truth. He's the spirit of truth. And Paul says, his first fruit is what? Love. It's not a coincidence. It's reality. The spirit of the living God, the spirit of truth, manifests love. And it's that spirit, as we enter into an Easter tide season, heading towards revival and Pentecost, it is that spirit that you and I need today. Otherwise, we will only ever be concerned for ourselves. We, we might look the part, 
We might know how to dress. We might know all the right Christian vocabulary. We might give the right, just the right amount into the offering plates. We might stand up in front of people and have all the eloquence and, and have all the presentation, and we can be a rotting corpse at the level of the soul, apart from the Spirit of God, the Spirit of truth, whose first fruit is love. Wesley was right. Wesley was right. He's not perfect. He's not always right on everything, but he's right here. That observation where he sees the connection of being filled with the Spirit and abundant grace being upon them all and them being of one heart and one mind and having all things in common. There's a connection. Don't miss it. The life of God is not just for you to do something for you, do something to you that you can enjoy and have salvation. No, the life of God abides in us. Truth and love. It's only by his presence and his power that those can reign supreme. And thirdly, the urgency, and no one's going to like this one, so don't throw anything at me, please. The urgency of discipline. And trust me, as a pastor, I approach this with much fear and trembling. The story of Ananias and Sapphira demands that we take biblical accountability and discipline seriously. And it is true. Throughout history, not just ancient history, your history, chances are many of us have been in a church context where this was handled really badly. There are situations where, where the church has responded with extreme severity. That is, you know, disciplining members or coming down hard on people for very trivial things. But then there's other situations where the church has been guilty of disciplining with severe laxity. Where things are just swept under the rug. They're just ignored. They're not dealt with. Or maybe one person was given preferential treatment and the other was not. One person suffered, the other person was given a pass. The, the worst examples of this show up in the news, don't they? Scandal and abuse and impropriety. And, and you see, there's, this is not a community of truth and love that disciplined rightly. And it's hard to do it rightly. It's hard. As, as the lead pastor here, the one who's at some level charged with with at least leading in this area. It's not just up to me. It's all up to all of us to be a community that, that holds each other accountable. It's not just up to me. And by the way, you hold me accountable. It's mutual all the time. But as the one who, who tends to see more than you do and enter in more than you do, I can tell you it's the hardest thing to do well. I wish sometimes that being a pastor just meant getting to preach a nice message on Sunday and everybody comes up and slaps me on the back and says, hey, good word, pastor, and then takes me out to lunch and pays for my food. I do get a good bit of the first of that. I don't get a whole lot of the second of that, so maybe the Holy Spirit will convict some of you here soon. <laughs> I wish that's what it was. It is that sometimes. But, oh, man, it's, it's other stuff, too. It's hard. It takes wisdom, which I feel is never in a full supply in my, my own mind and heart. It's enough. God gives enough. Um, 
But sometimes it seems like it takes a lot of work to, to have enough. It takes prayer. It takes courage. Man, it takes courage to go to someone in truth and love. It doesn't always take courage to come to them in truth, does it? Because <laughs> you've got something you're going to tell them and you're going to... No, to do, it, to do it like Jesus, it's hard. But it must be done. Because not only are individual souls at stake, but the whole life of the church is at stake. Every church that split or suffered or was crushed or was wiped out of existence, you could probably, if you did the work, trace it back to the sins of a few. And no one either had the wisdom or the courage or the, the, the power of prayer to step into that and prevent disaster. And that little bit of leaven spread to the whole. The call here, listen, hear me, hear me, hear my heart. The call is never, ever to be a community of judgment and condemnation. I think Jesus had some really powerful words about that, didn't he? If you dare, if you dare to begin to point out that speck you see, you better attend to that log sticking out first. There's a humility that comes with that. And don't approach this relishing the opportunity to correct you as if somehow it makes me look good. How's that any different than Ananias and Sapphira? Who, who, who did what they did to stoke their own ego, to make a name for themselves, to put themselves up on some sort of, you know, pedestal of virtue. If that's in your heart, you need to be corrected. It's not about being judgmental. It's not being about, being about condemning. Jesus had strong words against those things. The call here is to be a community that establishes and maintains and fights for right biblical boundary lines for our lives and for the life of our community. That's what we're fighting for. God, God's word has told us how we are to live, who we are to be, how we address these things in a right way, not in a wrong way. Not being extremely severe, but not being extremely lax. Not just in truth or just in love, but truth in love. Not taking what is private and airing it out to the public or, or dealing with something that is public and only talking about it in the private. No, God's word tells us what to be and what to do every situation. The principles are there. The power is there. And the call is to be a community that imbibes it and lives it out. This matter of discipline and accountability in the church is not about punishment or retribution. It is all about rescue and redemption. And I have seen with my own eyes over and over and over, year after difficult and challenging and white hair inducing year. The beauty of truthful, loving, personal accountability where relationships, by the way, not just this direction, but this direction, 
where relationships and souls and marriages and friendships are brought back from the brink of destruction to the glory of God. Oh, the, sub, the subtitle of this series is The Worst of Church. But I've seen the best of church. And it takes all of us to, for that to happen. The best of church. So in light of all this, I, I welcome the discomfort of the story. I, I appreciate it. The challenge because it shows, yes, that the Bible is not ignorant of the issues that face human relationships. It's not ignorant or dismissive of the failures that individuals or whole churches are capable of. It's not ignorant or dismissive of, the, of those things. Instead, it's honest about it, it's real about it, and it provides us with everything we need to be everything God called us to be. Not a community of conspiracy, but a community of confession. Not a community that either extorts on one hand or embezzles on the other, but a community that encourages and embraces. Not a community that harms, but a community that heals. Not a community marked by the actions of Satan, the father of lies, but one filled with the life of God, in whom there is no darkness and who never tells lies. Is this church a place where love, where truth and love reign supreme? Where we are real with God, real with ourselves, real with one another, not with a brutality ever, but in mercy, compassion, humility, Jesus was called meek, wasn't he? Well, you remember meek isn't weakness, is it? No, it's the gentleness of the strong. Does meekness define your life and how you relate to one another in your honesty? Is this a place where God's word is working to repair and restore every type of broken relationship as a witness to the power of the gospel to save to the uttermost? We can be that type of community, and we must be, we must be, by the grace of God and for his glory. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the challenge of, of your word and these, these narratives that are honest. Your word has a tendency to, to expose us, doesn't it? light dispelling darkness. But Lord, I pray that the light of your word will not just reveal and expose, but that it would transform. For once you were darkness, now you are light. Walk as children of light. Light begetting light. <laughs> it's not any light. It's your light truth of who you are in all of your fullness. The same spirit of truth, whose first fruit is love, that, that, that came at Pentecost is at work here today. Holy Spirit, would you come to me and make me real? 
make me true. Right at the centermost part of my being. So that there's nothing fake ever. There's no division. No dichotomy. No discrepancy. But that what you see is what you get. (laughs) For good or for bad. (laughs) Take it or leave it. Lord, help us to be who we are. As we are. And as you are making us to be. Because the individual lives are at stake, but oh, the whole life of this church can be at stake. Help us to be true in all that we are and do. We pray in your name. Amen.